Welcome to Islam for Christians. This is episode 111, Islamic History 624, The Aftermath in Mecca. Before the Battle of Badr, Muhammad, when he was looking kind of out at the battlefield and he was seeing who was going to fight in the battle, he reportedly said these words. Mecca has thrown unto you the best morsels of her liver. And he wasn't wrong. Among the approximately 70 men who died at Badr on the Meccan side, 12 of them were extremely high-profile leaders. They were very, very accomplished and important Meccans. And I'd name them, as the history books do. It's not hard to find their names, but let's be honest, you don't want to hear a long string of Arabic names, and I don't want to recite them, and neither of us will remember them anyway, so why bother? The point is, they were important men, and extremely so. When talking about these 12 men, historian Montgomery Watt put it this way, After Badr, There can hardly have been left alive in Mecca a dozen men of similar ability and experience. And this is what Muhammad meant with his liver comment. Because Mecca was not a huge place. Some estimates are as low as just a few thousand people. Now, I don't buy that, personally. If they could muster a thousand men to fight on such short notice, surely Mecca had to have, say, 10,000 people at least. But regardless of the number, it wasn't some giant seat of a large civilization. It wasn't Constantinople or some major cultural center in Persia or China or some other large empire. It was the nerve center of the Quraysh, and there were only so many of them. Now, the importance of this is still large. I don't want to underestimate that, but I, at the same time, want to emphasize that from a political standpoint, this was not a fatal blow, like from a leadership standpoint. Now, perhaps this is just a biased American attitude, but political leaders are, by definition, very easily replaced. They got to their position by edging out someone rather similar. So, Okay, one of them is gone, you just go down the line. Okay, get the next one. Say, for example, in my country. Let's say 100 cruise missiles hit the Capitol building while it was in session, and every member of Congress is dead. Well, that's a, that's a tragedy for those who know them, but for the country, it's really not that big of a deal. We'll just vote for some new people. The same with the president. There's nothing inherently special about these people. And Arabia, at least from a leadership political standpoint, it was the same way. Okay, the tribal leader dies. No big deal. The next guy steps up. So the political arena is not really where the pain is felt. You know, politicians, political leaders, they're a dime a dozen pretty much everywhere. But where you can feel the pain a little more acutely 
is places like in commerce or the military. Places, you know, with men who have actual expertise and skill. People with relationships and connections with other tribes. People who are known for getting things done. And Mecca had lost quite a few of those people. Many had been leaders, but they were also competent in these other areas. But back to the politics, there was a bit of an advantage in this for the Meccans. It resulted in the consolidation of power by one man, which is a pretty good way to get things done, especially in an emergency. So for the most part, Mecca's loss here was Abu Sufyan's gain. There wouldn't be a repeat of the Badr situation with so many people doing their own thing and making rash decisions, there would now be a somewhat unified command. No one of Abu Sufyan's stature remained. So, in the aftermath of Badr, Abu Sufyan was able to pick up the pieces in a very autocratic way. And he took action, forbidding the mourning of the dead taking all of the money from the caravan that had escaped Badr and putting all that money and material toward a military buildup. And he was going to get back at Muhammad sooner rather than later. Actually, he vowed he would have nothing to do with oil or women until he had carried out a raid on Muhammad's people. Now, I'm not sure what the oil part of that means exactly. My guess is it's some kind of a hygiene thing, but the women part is pretty clear. Abu Sufyan was trying to project himself as a very concerned leader, showing that he cared more than anyone else at righting the wrongs that had been done at Badr. And that was great for him. But for his wife, this was just another blow. And by wife, I mean Hind or Hind, H-I-N-D, not the other one. We'll get into that in a, in a minute. So for her, for Hind, in addition to losing most of her family at Potter, now Abu Sufyan was adding celibacy to her list of grievances. And you will see later how this woman challenged that energy and frustration. But in the end... Abu Sufyan would not have to wait all that long for his oil and women, because after 10 weeks, he had already gathered a few hundred men for a raid on Medina. There wasn't much to this. They decided, okay, we're going to go to the outskirts of Mecca, and we're going to stay with a sympathetic party. Now, obviously, this must have been a very large piece of property, you know, to keep these people hidden and everything, because in the end, they didn't end up fighting anyone. It isn't even known what the plan was exactly, other than to go there. And it's entirely possible that celibacy was wearing on Abu Sufyan, so he just had to do something once he got there to fulfill his pledge and void his self-imposed vow of celibacy. So what did they do? His crew burned a few houses, they burned a field or two, and then they went home. So, 
technically, the Beccans had attacked Mecca, or somewhere close to Mecca. But they didn't do any military or economic damage. However, if you're giving Abu Sufyan the benefit of the doubt that, you know, this trip actually had more purpose than to just, you know, relieve his frustration, maybe, just maybe he was thinking, let's do a PSYOP. That's PSYOP, P-S-Y-O-P, a psychological operation. For instance, in World War II, about four months after Pearl Harbor, the U.S. Armed Forces carried out what became known as the Doolittle Raids. They managed to get some bombers who were flown off an aircraft carrier for the first time in history. They got these bombers close enough to Japan that they could carry out a few air raids on the Japanese homeland. Now, this was a very, very small raid. I think 16 planes. And the damage was always going to be insignificant. But that wasn't the point. The point was to lift American morale, and at the same time, put the Japanese on notice that they would feel the brunt of this war too, and at home. And in that way, psychologically at least, it works spectacularly. Now, how do I know that it works spectacularly? More than a quarter million Chinese were killed as a reprisal for their role in the raids, harboring the American pilots and helping them to escape. Which is kind of disproportionate for 16 airplanes, right? But it was about way, way more than that. The Japanese knew it, the Chinese knew it, and the Americans knew it. And this raid under Abu Sufyan was very similar. The Muslims weren't exactly traumatized by any of this, but it was a warning shot. And after this, the Muslims, like the Japanese in 1942, they had to understand that now, this war is coming home. Literally. It will be on your doorstep, and sooner rather than later. And like Doolittle, Abu Sufyan returned, able to claim that he had actually dealt a blow to the enemy something real, which was something the people desperately needed to hear. So now, Abu Sufyan was the clear leader in Mecca. He was the one filling the military coffers. He started recruiting from nearby tribes and raising an army that would eventually march on Medina. And it was something they needed to do sooner rather than later. Earlier, I think a few years before this, Abu Sufyan had predicted that a Muslim presence in Medina would be a knife to the Qureshi throat. And he wasn't kidding. There would be no more caravans to Syria for the time being. The northerly route was cut off. It was out of bounds. There simply was not enough land between Medina and the Red Sea for any caravans to pass through. They tried one to the east of Medina, and Muhammad grabbed that one. So now they basically had three options. First option, stop the northern caravans for the near future and just absorb the economic hit. Two, they could find a bunch of boats and a naval land route to Syria. Can't imagine how expensive that would be, particularly for a 
a city that is not on the water. Or three, eliminate the Medinan threat. They would choose option three. Or rather, I should say, Abu Sufyan would choose option three. And like I said, after Badr, he was the man in Mecca. And Abu Sufyan's power was even more consolidated after Badr. He didn't really do anything, but rather there was this astounding episode involving a powerful man from Muhammad's tribe, the Banu Hashim. Now, you may remember the name Abu Lahab from Surah 111 of the Quran. Not episode 111 like this is, Surah 111 of the Quran. It was written specifically against him. Now, Abu Lahab was one of the most powerful men who did not go to Badr. He allegedly paid someone to go in his stead, which apparently was a thing. So, you have this funny situation where one of the most fervent opponents of Muhammad could not even be bothered to fight Muhammad himself. In modern times, Abu Lahab would be called a chicken hawk meaning a hawk, which is slang for a pro-war person, but not so pro-war that he will actually risk himself for that particular cause and join the army or something like that. So he was, in spirit if not in action, very attached to the anti-Muslim cause. Abu Lahab. So, when news came of what had happened at Badr, Abu Lahab just went berserk. And one of his servants, who apparently was a Muslim, when he heard it, he looked just a little too happy for Abu Lahab's liking. So, Abu Lahab started to beat him. And his sister-in-law, I think this is Abu Lahab's sister-in-law, she noticed the abuse and like I said, this is crazy stuff. She took a tent pole and she split his head open with it. Him meaning not the servant, but Abu Lahab. So he died a week later, fulfilling the prediction in the surah that had been written roughly a decade before. Like Surah 111 states, his wealth did not protect him. He died at the hands of his own family and he was plunged into flaming fire. From a certain point of view, he was thrown there by Muhammad and his battlefield success. That's what had caused the rage. Meaning the news of the Muslim success at Badr created such a flame in him that it cost him his life. And to top it all off, allegedly, Muslim sources here, some of his relatives had visions of him burning in hell. And if you're looking at all of this from the point of view of Abu Sufyan, by this point, I'm not sure whether he would consider himself to be lonely or lucky. Because it happened again. The high-ranking men of the Quraysh were just dropping like flies. And honestly, I think everyone in Mecca, if not the entire world, 
was better off without a guy like Abu Lahab. He kind of reminds me of, uh, I'm going to show my age here because I remember the war. He reminds me of Uday Hussein, the son of the notorious Saddam Hussein, the brother of the more competent Kusay Hussein. But Uday, he was a brutal and just useless man, if there ever was one. The Fredo Corleone of the Hussein family. And when he died, it was no loss to his father or to Iraq or to the United States. I cannot think of a single person who benefited from his existence. So again, is Abu Sufyan shouldering a greater burden without Abu Lahab? Or a lighter one, perhaps? And while we're on the subject of brutal dictators and their sons, I should note that Abu Sufyan had lost one of his sons at Badr, and another one was captured. These were children of his other wives, not the infamous Hind, you know, who lost dang near her whole family at Badr. So Abu Sufyan's son, Amr, he was in Medina as a POW. And what was the reaction of Abu Lahab to this whole situation? Basically, he said, well, they can keep him. Long as they like. They can just hang on to him. Because really, why lose both a son and wealth? He is purported to have said. Great father, huh? Now, Amr, in case you're concerned, <laughs> he was eventually released. Um, perhaps Abu Sufyan was using Muslim morality against them and against Muhammad. He probably knew they weren't just going to kill a POW and just because his father happens to be a sociopath. But in that way, I guess he kind of won because he got his son back and he didn't have to give up any of his treasure. And on the societal level, once again, Abu Sufyan would go back to attempting to set the tone for Mecca. But after a while, his directives just proved short-lived. For example, remember I mentioned there was a ban on mooring. This eventually gave way to great mourning. But when he had lost control of that, slick little fox that he was, he then just used that to whip up patriotic fervor. And many would actually end up rel ransoming their relatives who were in Medina, despite the cold-hearted uh, example that Abu Sufyan had set. And funny enough, you know, this whole situation with these Meccan captives being in Medina, the Meccans did actually lose a few more men in this process. Not because they were killed, but because their mere presence in Medina actually caused a conversion to Islam. There was a man named Jubair who stayed in Medina and heard the call to prayer and some Quranic surahs. He didn't convert on the spot, but after a while, he did. And then there was Umer, who came to Medina with the story that he was ransoming a relative. But in reality, this guy had a poison-soaked sword with Muhammad's name on it. I mean, not literally, of course. He was coming to kill Muhammad. And he was doing this because he felt he had nothing left to lose. And he would murder-suicide the victor at Badr who had done so much damage to the Quraysh. 
eventually he did get his confrontation with Muhammad. However, and keep in mind these are exclusively Muslim sources, Muhammad already knew exactly what he was going to do when he came to do it. And Umair demanded to know how he knew about his plot. How did Muhammad know what he was going to do? And Muhammad said, well, Gabriel told me. And at that point, Umair converted to Islam. And this would be the story in Arabia for the next five years or so, where the Muslims with grand poetry and a charismatic prophet, they would gradually chip away at the old ways, at the old powers, the old gods, and the old men and women of Arabia, really. The old guard simply could not offer what Muhammad and his God were offering. It was an unstoppable force, but obviously, not everyone understood that yet. Abu Sufyan especially. He was still busy raising an army to kill this new religion in its extreme youth. And Medina, Muslims and non-Muslims alike, they were increasingly conscious of this. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.